Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host for this program. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. It's a, a new series of programs that we're doing focused on what we're calling hard verses. In each episode, I'll interview a member of the Coming Home Network about some scripture verse that they consider or would have considered hard or difficult to understand. And then we'll discuss how their journeys of faith in Jesus Christ brought them to a deeper understanding and explanation of that particular verse. And uh, it's a great privilege this week to have as uh, my guest a good friend, uh, Gary Mashuda. He's an author, speaker, apologist, um, and it's always a great to have you, uh, Gary, join us on any of the programs that we're doing. So welcome, Gary. Oh, thank you. And uh, especially two books that I want to mention that connect to what we're discussing this uh, episode in the Deep in Scripture. And he's got two books in the Deuterocanonical books. And uh, Gary, tell us a little bit about those books, because I think they're, they're very, very important books to, uh, for our audience to consider reading. Sure. Uh, well, my first book is uh, Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, The Untold Story of the Lost Books of the Protestant Bible. And uh, in that book, I try to answer really the most, most asked and really the most important question in Catholic apologetics. Uh, did the Catholic Church add seven books to the Old Testament or did Protestantism remove them? So it's kind of a historical overview from the authorship of Sirach all the way to 1870 about what happened to these books, why they aren't in Protestant and Jewish Bibles, but they're in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. And uh, that was a few years ago, and it was it was widely received. And uh, occasionally I, I got a stream of uh, letters and people talking to me where they didn't really care about what happens in Protestantism. They didn't, they, they don't have real strong historical roots to the Reformation. So for them, what happened to these books isn't important. And they'd say, Gary, if you can just give me a positive case, some positive reasons why these books should be in scripture, I'll accept it. And so I thought, you know, this is really not, uh, our job to, bur to to carry the burden of proof because you know we always had this the innovators were the ones that removed them so i thought i'm going to write a book that gives a positive case so i have my new book the case for the deuterocanon arguments and evidence and in that I, I give what i believe is the best case for why anyone should accept these books as inspired scripture and i gary i uh, truly believe you did a great job with that Thank you. Um, and uh, I'm not just saying that to affirm a friend. I think you you really put all the arguments in a very succinct way for anyone to take their time and examine them. And like any argument, it's our need is to examine it with an open mind. I grew up all of my Bibles. And as a pastor, I had a, 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 a library full of Bibles, every imaginable translation, and only one or two had these books in them, these Deuterocanonicals. I grew up as a Lutheran, and I had a separate book that my mother had bought me uh, as a young man called the Apocryphal Books. It included all those other books, but it wasn't a part of my Bible. Right. And I didn't know what to do with them. Um, and basically lived the first 40 years of my life not 
not worrying about them at all because they weren't in my Bible. They weren't in my preaching. They weren't in my teaching. And I know, Gary, you were brought up with a Bible that had those. But I'm wondering, I dare say, even in your experience, uh, an awful lot of Catholic Christians go through most of their life not thinking about those other books. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a flyover country, biblically speaking. (laughs) Uh, Some really interesting books near the end of the Old Testament. But uh, yeah, I think even Catholics aren't very much aware of the Deuterocanon and its impact on the New Testament. And that's the point. As you... Uh, so clearly uh, dis- uh, demonstrate in your second book that the deuterocanonical books, it's not just about uh, proving that they're part of the Bible, but recognizing that they played a very important part in the foundational theology behind some of the New Testament books, some of the early church writings, and even our creeds. Mm-hmm you know, that are the foundation for our faith. And you really bring that out in your book. And so with that as a a bit of a background, Gary, let me just remind the audience before you and I, Gary, get into our discussion, is that um, if you want more information about this program, access past episodes, make sure you visit deepinscripture.com. But we'd love to have your questions and your feedback, especially on this issue that Gary and I are looking at today, the Deuterocanonical Books that are in Orthodox and Catholic Bibles, send us your email question to deepinscripture.com or by finding us on Facebook or Twitter, and we'll try and keep up with your questions because we've been getting a lot of them lately. All right, Gary, with that being said, what verse would you like to propose, for example, as a hard verse that has something to do with these deuterocanonicals? Okay, well, a a verse I think that would probably stop... uh, very uh, considerate Bible Christian would be Hebrews 11.35. And, you know, Hebrews 11 is the great faith chapter where the writer goes into Old Testament examples of those, the, the ancient ones who are tested of faith. And he starts in Genesis and he moves on to uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the great heroes of the Old Testament. And, uh, and then eventually he just starts talking about what they do, their exploits. He doesn't name them per se. And when you get to verse 35, the writer says something really interesting. He says, women received back their dead through resurrection. Some were tortured and would not accept deliverance in order to obtain a better resurrection. And I think as you're following through this great faith list of all the Old Testament saints, when you hit 35, the description doesn't seem to fit with any any uh, biblical character that we know of, right? Yeah. It gives three different traits. First, that they were tortured, uh, that they refused to accept release, and their motivation was specifically and explicitly the resurrection. Now, if you look through a Protestant Old Testament, you don't find anybody that fits those three markers. Right. You know um, However, if you ha- if your Old Testament includes the book of 2 Maccabees, you find out that all three of those markers are hit with the Maccabean martyrs in 2 Maccabees 6. Now, before we jump there, um, let me just say that, uh, you know, when I was a, a Lutheran and then later a Presbyterian pastor, um, Hebrews 11, it's about faith. 
Right. And so for Lutherans and, and Calvinists, I mean, this is a book about faith. And that's Luther and that's Calvin. And uh, now I will admit, so they're looking to Old Testament personalities and demonstrating their faith. Now I began to have a problem with some of those verses in Hebrews because in every case, it wasn't merely faith alone, but the, whoever they're referring to, they had faith and so they did something. Right. Their faith was always fleshed out in their life. It wasn't merely intellectual faith. It was their whole being. Abraham, you know, he, he got up off his duff and went and did something because God called him to. Well, that's that's uh, existential faith. It's all that we are. So you come all the way down, as you said, and I remember getting, you know, after even Rahab, the harlot in 31, well, okay, she's demonstrated on her faith because it's about her faith. In 32, what more shall I say? I have no time to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms and did what was righteous, obtained the promises. They closed the mouths of lions, put out raging fires, escaping the devouring sword, all of the weakness. So he, he waxes eloquently about all that they did. And then there's that verse you're talking about. And I, I avoided that verse. Because I didn't know what to say. Maybe I presume that the author of Hebrews all of a sudden was referring to the Christian martyrs. Okay. You know, possibly that, maybe that's what he was referring to. But, but you know, Gary, women received back their dead through resurrection. What does that mean? that a woman received her dead back from through resurrection. Some were tortured and would not accept deliverance in order to obtain a better resurrection. As you said, the answer is in those middle books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the women receiving back their dead through resurrection might be an allusion to uh, Elijah uh, in First sure. and Second Kings. But yeah, but the second part of the verse doesn't make sense. And like you said, you know, you, you think, well, maybe he jumps to the New Testament. But that's a pretty big jump when you're talking about Elijah. Then in the very same breath, others were tortured and would not accept release for the resurrection. There's only a few portions in Scripture that explicitly teach about the resurrection. and uh, But nothing about being tortured and so on. And in fact, if you start looking closely at it, you'll find out that there's all sorts of pointers to Second Maccabees. Like, for example, the the word that's used for torture, uh, tumpanan, uh, usually means beat. You know, that's where we get the word timpani from, right? But in very rare cases, it means torture. And it just so happens in Second Maccabees, when it's talking about these Maccabean martyrs, they were, the, the, the uh, torture is described as tumpanan, beating, you know? Uh, and then there's explicitly re, uh, parts where they say, uh, you know, you can kill me, but in the end, I will be raised and you won't. Why don't you take so, us to those verses in Maccabees, Jerry, and, and demonstrate the connections for us? Okay. Well, uh, for example, uh, you would go to Second Maccabees 6, 22 through 23. Right. Uh, and this says, and so that by doing this... He might be saved from death. So, in other words, uh, the the king was offering him release, but uh, he refused release. 
And uh, the king said that he'd be treated kindly on account of their old friendship with him. And then it continues, but he made up his mind in a noble manner. And it says, so he declared that above all, he would be loyal to the holy laws of God. So he's offered release. He refuses release. He's willing to accept martyrdom. The same thing's true with 2 Maccabees 6.30. When he is about to die under the blows, and again, I, th- I believe that word is tupanon, okay. he groaned aloud and said, it is clear to the Lord in his holy knowledge that although I might have been saved from death, I am enduring terrible sufferings in my body uh, under the, this beating, but in my soul, I am glad to suffer these things for fear of him. And then uh, the references to the resurrection is 2 Maccabees 7.9 and 2 Maccabees 7.14. I'll just read one of them. All right. And, and when he was at his last breath, he said, you accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. So, again, he has an explicit declaration. The reason why we're dying is because we believe in the resurrection. Yeah, and the, the resurrection, in if you take the Deuterocanonical books out of the Old Testament, there are very few references that are clear about the resurrection at all in the Old Testament. Yeah, right. Yeah. Much less those who are being tortured and released. It's just right. there's those three markers that you just don't find in Protestant canon, but you do find in the Catholic and Orthodox canon. You had also suggested, Gary, when we were preparing for our program, another scripture in Hebrews, which, I mean, isn't it a sense that when you put these together mm-hmm. with the ones we just mentioned, that it's a strong argument, just simply, though, your whole books fill in the gaps of the rest of the argument to demonstrate that the author of Hebrews had in front of him a Bible that had the Deuterocanonical books. Yeah, if you look at chapter 11, and he says that these are the ancients who are tested, you have to wonder, well, where are they attested to? Uh, He starts in Genesis and almost, uh, you know, it's not completely chronological, but he begins in Genesis, he ends in 2 Maccabees. So it seems as if the, yeah. the author's Bible must have had a canon that starts with Genesis, ends in Sacca Maccabees, and that's consistent with the Catholic Bible, the Catholic canon. Is that um, historical trajectory that you just described that we see summarized in Hebrew, is that witnessed to in any of the early church fathers and their writings? Uh, in terms in of— that way. Um, in in terms of chronological uh, exposition, yes, there are a few early fathers who also give examples from the Old Testament that begin in Genesis and then in Second Maccabees. Uh, offhand, I, I believe, oh boy, I'm trying to think. It's uh, one of the Cappadocian fathers does that for sure. Well, but I'm sure there's is- a few others. Anybody listening just goes to your books. I'm pretty sure the references were there, and yeah. uh, that's one of the powers of, of your books. You didn't know I was going to throw that question at you there. But, <laughs> Thanks for the curveball. Well, it's all right. But uh, <laughs> my point is that, and this is what came, it took me a long time to recognize in my own journey of faith, because um, you know, to a certain extent, I would read in my Greek New Testament which I used every week when I was producing my sermons, 
Uh, my call every week was to, which I had got from seminary, was to basically come up with my own translation of every text that I was preaching on. So I would use the Nestle Alon Greek New Testament. And I would also sometimes uh, then use the footnotes or the side notes to see where the author was referring. And in the Nestle uh, Alon New Testament, often in the side notes, it's referring to deuterocanonical books. Yes. And I wasn't sure what to do with them as a Protestant. Do I accept this? Where is this guy coming from? But over time, what I began to realize is, for example, the author of Hebrews, it seems very, very clear that he was not only um, using an old, uh, a Bible, that in, an Old Testament that included the deuterocanonical books, but that he was using the Septuagint, yes. which itself included the deuterocanonical. Maybe explain that to the audience, Gary. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament is the Greek Septuagint, which existed 200 years before Christ. And uh, yeah, I call these uh, subt uh, Septuagintal presuppositions. There's things in the New Testament that the New Testament authors presuppose that the writers are familiar with the Septuagint. And uh, this is a great example of one of those presuppositions. The writer of Hebrews presupposes you know about the Maccabean martyrs, so he doesn't have to go into detail. He just says these people were tortured and released. But there's dozens of other things. For example, earlier in Hebrews 11, he talks about Enoch being translated by God, and he was called a friend of God. And what's interesting in the Hebrew, if you look it up, it doesn't say Enoch having a friendship with God. It just says he walks with God. But in the Septuagint, it's actually explicit that it says, you know, he's taken by God because he was a friend of God. So the writer of Hebrews is using this Greek translation, and he presupposes that the Christians who are reading it also are using it and are familiar with the, the material given there. You know, I first noticed this, Gary, back when I was a Presbyterian pastor because I was free to choose each Sunday which verse I would preach from. And generally, I would preach from the New Testament, but I would often then have as a preliminary reading an Old Testament text that was a good foundational text. So I would choose whatever New Testament passage I wanted to preach on, and then in my translation work would see if it's quoting the Old Testament and so I would do that. I, I would, and often that'd be the Old Testament reading, and then the New Testament reading would be my. But I began to notice that when I looked in my English Bible at the translation in the New Testament, and then I would go to the quote from the Old Testament, often the New Testament quote was very different than the English translation in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, I couldn't explain why. And eventually I realized that it's because the New Testament is a Greek trans is translated from the Greek, and most of our modern Bibles are translated from the Hebrew the Old Hebrew Testament Bible. Bible. Yeah. And yeah, I know so that's, again, that's covered in your books. Right. And the key thing, too, is that the Septuagint during the time of Christ appears to have included the Deuterocanon. So in a way, it's the New Testament tacitly witnesses to approval of the Septuagint as a collection. 
because uh, it's it's normative text basically. Yeah. Well, given there's another verse in earlier in Hebrews that I think is important that you that we were going to talk about that gives another example that demonstrates that the we're not even sure who the author of Hebrews is, of course, though many in the early church assumed it was Paul. But um, but it does emphasize that behind this author laying in front of them is some copy of the uh, Septuagint. I mean, uh, probably the Septuagint, which includes the Deuterocanonical books. Right. Yeah, that's Hebrews 1.3. This, for me, is one of the most powerful proof texts to show the Deuterocanon is an inspired text. Hebrews 1.3 begins, it says, it's talking about the sun, that he is the, the radiance or the refulgence of his glory, the Father's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. Uh, what's interesting about this verse is that the writer of Hebrews is using an extremely rare Greek word when he talks about refulgence or radiance. Or actually, I like the King James translation. It's the brightness of God's glory. Uh, it's only used once in the entire New Testament, and it's only used once in the entire Greek Old Testament. And that one time it's used is in Wisdom 726. And uh, if you look at the context of the Wisdom 726, it, it's, an, it's uh, almost a parallel to what Hebrews is talking about, because it's talking about the wisdom of God. And there's all sorts of little connections where you can see where the writer of Hebrews in the first chapter actually uh, picks up on some things in Wisdom 7. And in 726, it describes God's wisdom as the refulgence of the everlasting light or the eternal light. And this is an incredibly important verse Christologically because um, the early church fathers used Wisdom 726 as proof text or foundation against the heresy known as Arianism. The Arians argued that there was a time where the sun was not, that uh, Jesus was, in a sense, came into being after after the Father, and he's not co-eternal with the Father. And they use Wisdom 726 and also Hebrews 1.3, which is dependent on that verse, to show, no, the Son is co-eternal with the Father. Now, think about this. Now, of course, when they're talking about light, they're not talking about like a light bulb. They're talking the sun or, or fire, right? Now, if God's wisdom is the brightness of light— the early fathers came up with three important things. Number one, the light generates brightness. Okay, so that means that the sun is generated by the Father. Okay. But the second point is interesting, that you can't have light without brightness, and you can't have brightness without light. Although they're distinct, they're really intrinsic to each other. And I think it was Augustine actually taunts one of the Arians and says, show me a light without brightness and I'll show you the father without a son. <laughs> so you can see that brightness is co, uh, it's co-eternal with the everlasting light. And so this is an incredibly important proof text. Now, there's lots of things we can know about God through nature and there's lots of things we can know about God through reason, but we can't know the Trinity, that's only something that can be disclosed by God. And the writer of Hebrews I, is dependent on wisdom, so it shows that Hebrews is using a deuterocanonical book to confirm doctrine, and a very important piece of doctrine, the relationship of the Son to the Father. 
and which is runs completely counter to the early Protestants, the current Protestants, that believe that the deuterocanonical books are apocrypha and they cannot be used to confirm doctrine. Yeah, and there's a long history behind that. Yeah, and uh, which you do in your books, but. Um, when you take the time to, to look back at the writings of the early church fathers, and as you're even mentioning, the background to the, the creedal councils, mm -hmm. you see that, you know, they're looking for arguments. Uh, the, the foundational arguments of the early church were to trace back an idea to the churches of the apostles. Mm -hmm. Where did it come from? Because they're trying to see that there was a deposit of faith that our Lord gave to his apostles, or they gave to their disciples, and on and on. So you want to trace that thread through the apostles back to the words of Christ himself. And then when you recognize, as you look behind the, we can see it evidenced in any two, and I, I challenge any, any listener to just open your English Bible and look at any New Testament quote of an Old Testament text and compare the English and you'll see that they aren't word for word. And especially in Hebrews, Gary, especially it's true in Hebrews, because Hebrews from beginning to end is quoting the Septuagint all the way through, very clearly it seems. So you can see that behind the New Testament, the authors are have the, the, the Septuagint in front of them. The early church writers are constantly referring to the, the Deuterocanonical books. And then in the, the notes behind the consuls, there are references to the Deuterocanonicals. Yeah, like uh, God from God, light from light seems to be taken from that idea where anything that comes from God is God. So it's God from God, and then light from light is the brightness from the eternal light of God. Excellent. Now, we, we, with a little time left, let me throw this uh, question at you. So why, if... The foundation to our creeds and even the direct references in our New Testament. So you can, in fact, even I think about the early parts of Colossians where Paul is, um, you know, waxing eloquently about God as creator and all those images. It's almost as if that in Paul's 10 plus years in Tarsus, as he's trying to make the transition theologically from his Jewish childhood into Christianity to understand the image that much of his reflection was on wisdom, was on the book of Sirach. Mm -hmm. The ideas of Colossians all seem to bring out images that are in wisdom and Sirach particularly. Right. Uh, all that being said, why would anyone have saw the need to drop these books out of the Bible after they have been a part of it for 1500 years? That's a good question. Uh, and, uh, I think part of it is uh, when Luther came up with his uh, understanding of justification by faith alone, uh, he had to radically re uh, reimagine purgatory and he rejected indulgences. And there was a debate that he has with Johann Eck uh, in, in Leipzig. And uh, it, during the debate, Johann Eck cited 2 Maccabees 1246, by the way, the same book that the writer of Hebrews, you know, references. Right. That it's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead as a proof text for purgatory. And what's interesting with Luther is he disputes Eck's interpretation of – he also saw it, cited some other things. But only when he comes to 2 Maccabees 
He says uh, Second Maccabees is not canonical, and therefore it cannot be entered into debate as a proof text, you know, as a source for doctrine. And uh, Eck pushes him a little bit more, and then eventually Luther appeals to Luther, and then eventually says the church can't make something inspired when it's not. So it really comes down to his own decision. And from that point on, Protestantism really can't affirm these books like the, the ancient church did, because if they did, then it would undermine really the cause of the Reformation, you know, that purgatory exists, the indulgences are possible, such things like that. Yeah, I, uh, one of the problems that I saw, and I recognize this in myself, in my own journey, was that so much that I had taken to be true about the, what I called the Apocrypha, I had just accepted uncritically from people that I trust. My Bible didn't have it, so I didn't worry about it. I never examined it. Mm -hmm. And the people that I studied under in seminary, the question really never came up at all that I remember. And if it did come up, it was because it wasn't important to me. It wasn't in my Bible, you know. So, I mean, mean, there's the issue. And that in some ways goes to show a long series of misinformation because isn't it true, Gary, that that one of the primary reasons that even Luther himself dropped the canonical, deuterocanonical books from the canon was because uh, of the footnotes and comments that Jerome made Mm -hmm. in the 4th century when he produced the Latin Vulgate. And even though the views of Jerome were not accepted by those around him at the time, yet his views uh, were passed on because of his importance in translating the Old Testament into the Vulgate. And they, those views just remained unexamined for centuries and became the foundation for the newer ideas that then were passed on unexamined. Yeah, no, it's true. And uh, you have church fathers trying to save Jerome and reinterpret his words, kind of twist them a little bit so that it sounds like he's actually affirming these books. Uh, but you're right, though. It was largely unexamined. Uh, the church had uh, dogmatically already affirmed the, the Deuterocanon scripture way back in the fourth century. I mean, in fact, those councils met largely because of Jerome to reaffirm his uh, prefaces. But, uh, you know, by the time you get to the, the, the re- time of the Reformation, Christianity was not at its highest and brightest peak. It was actually pretty low. You know, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of sloppy language. And um, so I think that I think Martin Luther uh, exploited Jerome because it was a way out of not accepting these books as scripture. Well, Gary, thank you for our discussion today. We'll have you back and talk about some other issues. Again, I want to encourage uh, the listeners to uh, examine Gary's books. I I think they're the point he makes in his books are very important. If you want to find out more about what Gary does, go to handsonapologetics.com. He's got a couple other books too, one on Mary and and uh, and on how to help our our children. Uh, grow in their faith. And so I encourage you to, to do that. Gary, thank you again for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. 
And just a reminder to all of you listening that we, we want to hear from you. You can email us at questions at deepinscripture.com or leave us a voicemail question or comment by clicking the button when you go to deepinscripture.com. You'll see it on the page. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. And also just a reminder that Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network, a network of Christian men and women who, in their walk with Christ, found themselves drawn to embrace the Catholic Church. Wherever you may be on your own Christian journey, we invite you to walk, to learn, and to pray with us. So please join us at www.deepinscripture.com www.chnetwork.org. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep in Scripture. Look forward to joining you again next week.